Father, thank you for this time in the word. Thank you for this church. Thank you for saving us, Lord. We would have nothing without you. Uh, we would just uh, wrestle around trying to somehow prove ourselves worthy of your love. That would be exhausting and such a failure. But in Christ, we have everything we need. You've granted us strength and power, your own spirit. Even in the toughest circumstances, you are there with us. And we can find victory in Christ. I thank you that you love us. You never leave us nor forsake us. And you left us with the most perfect manual man could ever desire. So Lord, may we be good stewards of it. May we love the word. May we read it. May we study it. May we believe it. That's the hardest part, Lord. Help us believe the word in daily life, Lord, so we can live for you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for letting us sing to you tonight. The glorious sound it is of hearing the brethren sing to our Savior. May that have been sweet aroma to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we left Moses and the nation of Israel off at the base of Mount Sinai, if you remember. They had made their way there and set up camp. And God dwelt there among them, really on top of the Mount Sinai. He came down in such a fiery display. Uh, they were given a line to not to come across that line, neither man nor beast. Great fear fell upon them, in fact, if you remember this. Chapter 20, chapter 24, so forth. Um, and they did not want to approach God. They wanted Moses to approach God for them. They were afraid of God. And God calls Moses up the mountain and he begins to give him instructions. And what's fascinating, he's given him instructions of how he can dwell with a bunch of sinful people. I have found that um, an overwhelming, encouraging, yet challenging truth as I've studied this. Here is this holy God designing a plan with Moses how, so how he can reside with them. They're sinners, just like you and I. And here is holy God, and he wants to be in their midst of his people, the nation he has called Israel. And he wants to be there, and by his grace and mercy, he establishes plan and begins to give it to Moses. Moses goes up on the hill, and God begins to give him blueprints, right? Of some sort, of what this tabernacle, this tent of meetings, what this is going to look like, and just how this holy God can come and fill it and be there among these people, and how there can be a temporary uh, holding, withholding of, of a righteous God on, a, on an unrighteous people and how he can be there with them for a while. It's, it's fascinating. Now in the text there's so much details and what I'm going to do is kind of lump things together and give you overviews of these next couple of chapters and then we're going to run over to Hebrews and put it all together in Christ. But God is giving these tremendous blueprints to to Moses, and they're very detailed, and they're difficult to read through. If you're reading through your Bible, sometimes you go to them because they're repetitious in some ways. But yet, I want you to keep in mind as we look at this, and as you read through your Bible, maybe you're doing a, a yearly read through the Bible, and you come to Exodus, and of course Leviticus is a little more difficult at times. You keep in mind that all this is being done so a holy God can reside among people. That helps me get through that. And then the greater and more fuller uh, fulfillment of that is looking forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. So in some of the previous passages, like verse chapter 25, we, we looked at the sanctuary itself and the building materials that had to be gathered. And, and God was in very detail, very clear of how Moses wanted to do that and how he was supposed to take care of that. And then he gives him instructions on the Ark of the Covenant and there this golden uh, top, atonement top, would be placed there with angels hammered out on top of that. And the Shekinah glory would reside there. But, but clear, clear instructions. In chapter 25, verse 22, he says, There I will meet with you. There I will meet with you. 
but you've got to do it my way. Brings out a table of showbread and, and golden lampstands. Oh, these are all beautiful things of reminding the nation of Israel that God was their light, God was their substance. And of course, then Jesus Christ brings great fulfillment to all that. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. All of that is fulfilled in Lord Jesus Christ, as we saw, if you remember, all the way back to November 18th. But then we make our way to chapter 26. And that's our first thought here today. I just have some simple thoughts. The tabernacle. The tabernacle. And that's what verse, chapter 26 is all about, is this tabernacle. And, and after the description of these principal items that are in 25 that are put into this place, now the description of the tabernacle starts to take place. He's given almost everything except the incense altar, and he's going to get to that in a few chapters. But now there's a description of the tent itself and, and where the sacred furniture will be kept and, and used. And so when you just take a a peruse over chapter 26, he spends the first six verses on the curtains of linen. Uh, The 7 through 13, he talks about the curtains of goat hair. Um, And then ram skins, verse 14, that's the outermost covering. And then he gets into the post and the frames and the sockets and, and all of those things. And then finally to this veil that separates him from man in verse 31 to 37. Now, I have a couple of slides. I'll have Troy put up the first slide, and I'll point some things out as we go along here um, as we begin to think about this tabernacle. Now, the divine instruction to Moses was to continue this construction. And, And the way he gives it, which is fascinating, the way God brings us down to Moses, is he starts from the innermost part of the Holy of Holies, and instruction works inside outwards. With the final piece being the curtain of separation when he gives the details here. And so there's a description of the tabernacle that it just leaves a lasting impression on you when you study this of the sheer numbers of coverings and curtains and hangers and hooks and rods and all of this. And the description helps you understand that there was a tremendous privilege for God to be among them, but yet it was detailed that is God among men. And that's not an easy thing with the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. However, access to God, though not easy... God decided to put himself in the middle of the nation. We'll see in future passages where he lines the nation up with the tabernacle carried in the middle of them and tribes out front and tribes to the right and tribes to the left and tribes behind it. And that was not done just merely for protection, which was a great military strategy as well, but it was to show that God was in the center of his people. He always is in the center of his people. I've said so many times through the years, the most holy place in the world is right where you're standing if you're a believer. Because God has taken up residence with us in our hearts. But in this holy of holies, this most holy place, there was only one person permitted. And it was a high priest. And these are the instructions that are starting to come in these passages. And that was only once a year. Once a year, one day out of the year, Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, could one man come in and approach God. Well, on that very special occasion, a high priest would take repeated precautions, cleansing and washing and cleansing and washing and cleansing and washing, in order to protect himself from his own sin and even the sin of the nation as he stepped into the presence of the Almighty God as his Shekinah glory would fill the temple. And there this high priest would enter that most holy place with this sacrifice of blood, an innocent animal, an unblemished animal. That blood would be brought in and it would be sprinkled on that atonement, on that what we refer to as the mercy seat, the golden top of the Ark of the Covenant, and that would be thrown across there. Now, the scene looked like this, according to Leviticus 16, 13, that this Smoke from the incense and the altar just outside would have carried up over that veil and filled that inner room. It was designed that way. 
And the high priest would walk into that most holy place and he was not look, to look directly, according to Leviticus, not directly at the ark itself, lest he would die. Now, all of this gives you a pic picture of limited access to God. And as New Testament Christians, New Covenant Christian, Christians, this is really fun to study. There was a limited access to God. But that was all going to change, wasn't it? Before we get too, more, too much deeper into this passage, I want you to go over to me with the New Testament real quick because we're looking at that veil and, and I want to just look at Matthew. I found myself back in this text just marveling at what happened at the death of Christ. Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. Our Lord Jesus now has been on the cross for some, probably coming in on six hours. And here Matthew records that in verse 50, Matthew chapter 27, verse 50, that Jesus cries out. Because at the end of his life, he's going to take his last breath, and with that last breath, he, he gives this loud voice. Uh, Matthew does not record it, John does. We believe that's John 19.30. And he says, it is finished. And there he gives up. He gives up his own spirit at that point. Here Matthew says he yields it up. And one of the most incredible events happens from all the way from this Exodus passage where the instructions to this veil are given in such detail. We, in, we looked at them the, in, in November, this curtain was said to be uh, somewhere around four inches thick. When the soldiers of Rome destroyed the temple in, in AD 70, they tried to hit, hitch teams of chariots up to tear this veil, and they could not do it. At the death of Christ, verse 51 says, Behold! Now, if he wants us to get the magnitude of what's about to happen, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rock split. And so for all of, of this relationship that God has had with sinful man, he's, he's always been in a limited access up to this point. Very limited. One man, one time a year. That's it. That's it. One day, one time a year, one man can get to God. And this passage just strikes you. That was the end of that. And from this time forward, all those who are saved by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ have, have the right and the privilege and the calling to walk into the presence of in that a holy place, the most holy place where God himself resides and speak with him. It's astounding, brothers and sisters. We should praise the Lord we were born on this side of the cross. <laughs> to walk into his presence at any place, at any time. It'd be fun to go around the room and talk about where are some of your strangest prayers were at. <laughs> Places you prayed Anytime, any place, any one of us now can walk into the presence of the Lord. Look with me over at Hebrews chapter 10. Might throw something in the book of Hebrews because we're going to come back to that in a minute, but I want to show you one passage before that. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 18 and following. I'm not sure Moses understood that this detailed drawings of this temple and particularly this veil was going to be shredded one day by God and, and we would have this type of relationship. He knew he was a sinner. He knew God would have to deliver him. But those that came after him, those who would have known the law but had come to Christ, the writer of Hebrews begins to plead with them not to turn back to lesser things all through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 18 says, Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? 
It would waste, well, I don't know, waste. It, imagine all of us having to come here and we being sacrifices all the time. Uh, all the work that would go into that. And how easy it would be to be in a long line of people going, I wish they'd get their lambs done. I've got to get mine done. And how easy the, the aspect of worship would fleet away because there was only one man who could stand before God in one day of the year. And I love this verse because it reminds me that where there's forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. We don't ask Christ to die again. We don't offer him anything but believe in his finished work. So verse 19, therefore, if that's true, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, and look at this, by a new and living way. So he had to remind these first century Christians there's a new and living way. They, they were tempted to stay in that old way. They're tempted to come with their own efforts still. Boy, that's a temptation for us today, isn't it? But I better go to church unless God doesn't bless my business. Or he doesn't bless me with good health. I'll do this in order to gain something from him. Such earthly, sinful thinking, right? There's a new and living way which he inaugurated for us. Notice this. Through that veil, right? The one we're seeing in Exodus. The one that ripped in Matthew 27. That is his flesh. Through his flesh, through him coming to earth, representing us, he could bring us right through the veil. If it's some spirit form, like some believe, that Jesus was here just in some spirit form, he doesn't bring us through the veil. Notice that term flesh. It's in his flesh, meaning his incarnation, he was able to represent us and bring us right into the presence of the Almighty God. In verse 21, and since we have a great, great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with sincere, uh, sincere heart and full assurance of faith. I, I love these passages. When, when there's doubt, when you try to fall back on your own strength, where you're reminded we have a great priest over the house of God, I put my faith in him and I find confidence. Everybody wants to know about assurance. I think you know, when you plant churches um, and you start with a lot of young believers and non-believers, you answer these questions over and over. Because people are automatically think, yes, I believe in Jesus, but what do I need to do? What can I do to add to this to help this come about? And the writer of Hebrews is, is, is encouraging these first century believers who have been raised going to temple, raised under the rabbinical teaching of the nation of Israel, raised under all these Laws and traditions reminding them that you draw near to God with a, through Christ with a sincere uh, heart, full of insurance, having our hearts sprinkled clean. They would have known this language, wouldn't they? They could see that blood in their mind's eye going off the fingertips of that high priest. And here he's saying, see that blood of Christ falling upon you that he washed you clean. And notice this, he sprinkled you clean from even your evil conscience. The Day of Atonement was once a year, one man, once a year. Hold back the wrath of God. Hold it back like a dam holds back water. One more year, hold it back. Sin would have to be dealt with, and that would not cleanse your conscience. You would, you would have struggles with conscience. But here he says, cleanse your evil conscience and our, our bodies washed with pure water, the purifying work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 23, let us hold fast to this confession of our hope without wavering. And that word wavering is important when I think Christians waver because we quit holding fast to this at times. It doesn't mean you lost your salvation, but you certainly waver very when you don't put your faith in Christ that day. But we're to hold this without wavering. This is why we sing songs. I believe. We did, I think we did this last Sunday. I believe. And we start making statements. This is why we have a doctrinal statement for our church that's very detailed and has some actual length to it and supported by tons of scripture. Because it's a statement. We hold fast to this confession that Jesus Christ died once for our sins. 
We believe that. I'm forgiven by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't hold fast that confession, you will waver. In fact, you find yourself wondering if you're saved. But notice what it's based on. For he who promised is faithful. That's why we come to church, verse 24. Stimulate each other. Love and good deeds. and Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. There's a whole internet church out there now. I trust many of our people that are home can't be here because of physical limitations. But there's a whole internet church now in the world thinking somehow they can fulfill this that way. But the Bible says that's the habit of some. This has always been a problem. People don't want to gather because there's accountability there and, and we have to love one another and that's hard to do at times. But that's the idea. That's what blood-blocked Christians do. We, we love one another and we encourage each other and we, we even exhort and challenge one another. We'll go back to the book of Exodus with me because he gets into the next instructions in chapter 27. Here we start to find more of the courtyard and the things that are in the courtyard. I found this fascinating as well. And again, I'm not going to read much out of this passage, but give you kind of an overview of what's going on here. And as we following the, the outward movement from that chamber of 26 kind of gives us that view of the chamber and, and the curtain and the veil and all of that that's in there. But coming out from that chamber, out from the presence of the Lord there, verse 27 starts to describe the altar that is found in the center of the, the courtyard. And that's what verses 1 through 8 are about. Verses 9 through 19, they gives us a view of the, of the breadth and length and the size of this uh, nine through nine, excuse me, nine through nineteen of this courtyard, and here we find less costly uh, um, materials. They're predominantly metals being made of bronze. They've got to be out in the weather, um, and they're having hundreds and thousands of sacrifices put on them. In the case of the altar, and so their structures a little different. There's great detail given here. But in this courtyard, the Israelites were permitted to come with their sacrifice uh, and so present themselves acceptably, be, uh, acceptably before this covenant God, right? And then verse 20 through 21, there's an added note on oil, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But back to verses 1 through 8, we find this bronze altar, or an altar of burnt offering, it might be labeled. And you can see it here. Um, let see if I can get, work out my new little clicker here. Maybe not. It's on, off, on. Oh, no, go back to the next one, other one. Not this one yet. There we go. So this is the courtyard now that we're talking about, and this would be the altar. This would be the east, in, um, yes, the east entrance into it. And that's where people would come. They would be, they'd be met right here with their sacrifices, and from there the priest would take them to that altar there. And the altar was designed for a lot of work. Um, it... It was designed in a way that would be distinguished from the incense altar or, or in even the Ark of the Covenant. It was designed very differently. And, and, and bronze was there to show that it wasn't, it wasn't that altar. Now the size of the altar um, was meant to include everything from a whole bull offering, a bull laying on this thing. And we've had bulls that weighed over 2,000 pounds, so you can imagine how well this thing has to be built um, to just simply the fat that would be taken from around the kidney and offered. In verses 9 through 19, you'll see there that we find the description of this courtyard where this bronze altar was to be placed. And the courtyard itself is this rectangular. You can see that's a rectangular area that surrounds the, the tent, the tabernacle right there. And, and, and with its boundaries, it, it made these outer limits of this really sacred area. And we call the tent of meetings, and this is where Moses will meet with God. But you'll notice the size of the tent, and I don't know if that picture is to scale, but the tabernacle itself, the tent there, is, is only about a sixth the size of all of the space that was dedicated for that courtyard. The first tabernacle um, was made for plenty of room for the priests to take a sacrifice after sacrifice and bring them in and deal with those animals and so forth. And 
it was not designed so much for the public to be in there in, in, in large, massive groups. They were to stay and come in an orderly fashion. Later on, if you study Solomon's temple or even King Herod, who rebuilt the temple, he made courtyards and waiting areas and even courtyards for women and so forth. All of those were there. But in the beginning, it was just this right here that you see on the screen. Verses 20 through 21, I wanted to take a short note at this because I thought this was actually kind of fascinating. Here he gives a description to the sons of Israel of what to bring as far as oil for this lamp. Now it's interesting he drops this right in here, but they were to bring a clear oil of beaten olives for the light and to make the lamp burn continually. In verse 21 it says, In the tent of meetings outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron his son shall keep it in order um, in order from evening to morning before the Lord, and it shall be a perpetual state throughout their generations for the sons of Israel. Now, now these verses here give some direction um, that are included here in the way the oil of the lamp was to be used. I did a little thinking about that. I thought, well, man, it could get pretty black inside um, that holy place with that burning all the time. But God had a way of leading them to do this right. They were to uh, take olive oil. um, And they were given instructions um, to not take olive oil and press it like they would in a press where little bits of olive would fall in it. That was actually a lower quality oil. And that's what would make it smoke. Josephus said that they would take the best olives and they had uh, rocks that were soaked in and oil, uh, olive oil over the years. And they would put the olives on this big rock. And then they would lay flat rocks on top of that and just let the oil from gravity just come out of that. And they used only that purest oil for these, this lamp in the temple, in the tabernacle. And the reason they did that, it was so pure because it didn't have any pieces of anything in it. It would burn clear and long and almost have no smoke. Now, Josephus said probably around his time they would light three of the lamps during the day and at night light seven of them. So this was representing that God was with them all at all times. Now verse 21 is also something, we'll come back to this later, but this is the first time we see the mention of the tent of meetings. And that's an important thing. I have it marked in my Bible because this tells us that the Lord has divinely pronounced that the Lord would meet Moses here in this place. This is where God was coming. And that's why there's so much detail given to this. Now the mention of Aaron and his sons, they've been mentioned now. There's a transition that's going to come. And Aaron and his sons are now going to be the priests who are going to go in and take care of uh, the atonement and the showbread and so forth. In the next two chapters we'll see the garments in preparation for them. But the lamps were to be burning all the time to remind them that God was ever present with them. He was watching. He was there. Now, although all the items of the tabernacle have not been mentioned yet, you can get an understanding of of what's happening here. And and you can see the value that was placed on the high priest in this tabernacle, how he was supposed to move in there, how he was to be reminded as he approached God, that God was uh, an ever-presence with them. God delivered them. God provided for them. All of that was to remind them. But as they came into this courtyard and, and made their way to this, this, um, this burnt offering, this bronze altar here, they would come in through that east end, right into the end of the tabernacle, tabernacle gate there. And they would come to this bronze altar. And if you notice, it's quite large. And it reminds you that in the text of, of how big this thing is. Um, it's probably, they, they, would call it, they call it cubits, of course. And they would measure a cubic from an elbow to the tips of a finger, and usually somewhere around 18 inches would be. So this, this thing's somewhere between 7 and 8 feet square. That's how big this thing is. It's probably close to 4.5 feet tall. This is a massive altar. And as I said before, it were big enough to put full bulls on this thing to offer before God, let alone turtle doves and so forth else what people would bring. But passing by it, as they would come in and they would pass by it, they would come to a wash basin before they'd go into the holy place. 
And that perhaps maybe set off to the side a little bit as they made their way there. And, and, and the tent, this holy place, or the most holy place, was erected in, in the back half of the closure. You can see that. It, it, they didn't, you would think, well, maybe they put it up in the middle here, but they, they put it towards the back. This left plenty of room as they lined up the sacrifices uh, for the nation to give um, on those high holy days. Next slide. He would pass now through the holy place in and, and the first division of tents and the priest would have found there on his left on the south side of that first enclosure, the holy place, the lampstand and it would be burning there. And then on the right side or the north side of the holy place there would be the showbread again reminding them that God had made provision for them. And then while at the far end or the west end of this holy place is the altar of incense. And of course that would be burning right in front of the curtain. And the smoke would go up over the curtain and fill the most holy place. And then once a year this high priest after cleansing, after cleansing was permitted to go through that veil. Now once he would go through the veil into the most holy place. There in front of him would be this Ark of the Covenant with its golden atonement cover with two cherubim hammered out and wings stretched out and the Shekinah glory filling it. And um, there's no way that this picture does that justice, but can you imagine being the only guy once a year walking into that and there this, uh, this Shekinah glory. They had seen the pillar of fire that had led them through the wilderness, but now it's hovering right above this atonement seat, properly named by God. What a massive visual that must have been, but intimidating it must have been. And yet, here's the kindness of God to dwell with sinful men. He made a way to dwell with sinful men. And yet all of this is a foreshadowing of greater things to come. As I studied this, I thought, you know, Lord, there's so many people who are satisfied with this sort of relationship with God. I'll just find a guy, and that guy can talk to God for me. I can give a little money. I can do a little bit of that. I can show up a couple of services here and there. He can put something on my tongue, and he can do all that, and I'm just happy with that. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? See, many people are very happy with this. They don't want a personal relationship with an almighty, holy God. You know, there's a reason why, as though they may see themselves as unworthy to be in God's presence, but they really are not humbled by that. It's the note of that you know you're truly saved. You, you desire to have a personal relationship with God Almighty. And through by this, this faith that God grants us to believe, you know through the teaching of the, the word of God or somebody shared the gospel with you that you know that's going to come through the Lord Jesus Christ and you long for that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how you know you're saved. Otherwise, most of the world is just fine with some kind of religious thing where somebody else can just take care of that stuff and I'll let that happen. But that's not the saved. <laughs> that's not the saved at all. Oh, we desire and thank God daily that we have a personal relationship with the Almighty. Isn't that fascinating just to think about for a few moments? The Almighty God, the everlasting, immortal Father, I can call him Abba. Can you imagine dropping back into time and telling these guys that? Oh yeah, don't go near that. Later on, history tells us that they tied ropes onto the feet of priests. They were struck dead in the presence of the Almighty God and drug out of there. But not us. Not us. Oh, we have a beautiful relationship because of another high priest. <laughs> Let me take you back to Hebrews and let's do a little jet tour through Hebrews real quick. I want to encourage you today... I love studying the Old Testament, but the reason I love studying the Old Testament is because it leads me right back to the New Testament. 
I love to see the power and authority and glory of God in the Old Testament, but it runs me right to the cross. And there's no better book to interpret the Old Testament than the book of Hebrews. Keep your fingers levered up. We're going to make a, a little jet through, tour through this book. Chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Here we're introduced that God, after he spoke in a long, long ago to the fathers and prophets in many, way, many portions in many ways, he in these last days has spoken to us in his son, literally in son. <laughs> if you look at the Greek. He's spoken in son. This important phrase there. Whom he, God, appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So he's not only appointed and given everything, but he's whom God made everything through. He's creator Christ, isn't he? We should refer to him as creator Christ. Christ, it is he who is the radiance of his glory. Right there. Shekinah glory, he's the radiance of that. You want well, I'd love to see the radi- I'd love to see the Shekinah glory. Look to Jesus. That's what the Bible's telling us, right? This is Old Testament terminology right here, pointing to Jesus Christ. Is the radiance of his glory. He's the exact representation of his nature. They share a divine nature together. He is not a lesser God. <laughs> That's what the world believes. In fact, most of the world rejects him as God. Only Bible-believing Christians see him as fully God. Notice that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Hey, this is the kind of high priest you want. He holds all things together by the word of his power. Does that statement ever get old as you study the Bible? I have preached on this passage countless times, and every time I come to that phrase, I just stand there and think of awe of our Lord Jesus Christ, the same one who hung on the cross, holds all things together by the word of or you could even say this, the power of his word. He's got it all together. Now look at this next phrase. This is well marked in my Bible. When he, Jesus, had made purification for our sins. This whole setup, this whole tabernacle, the whole system that God set up with the nation of Israel so that he could be in their presence was all about purification at least for a year. To hold off the wrath of God. But notice this phrase. Here, this high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes and he purifies in one presentation. Because he brings his own blood. (laughs) And and not only did did it take care of that year, but it took care of the entire, uh, excuse me, of eternity. Because those are what he does. He sat down. When he said it's finished, he meant it was finished. Don't add to this. I'm done. And he sits at the right hand and there given all the authority and all the power of the majesty on high, the Bible says. Christ made a way. Christ made a way to the Father for all of eternity. Oh my goodness, is that good news? He's the great high priest. I got it going, chapter 3, 1 through 3. We're doing a jet tour here. Therefore... Holy brethren, I love that phrase. Chapter 3, verse 1 to 3. Therefore, holy brethren. He throws an extra term in there, doesn't he? Because this is what Jesus did. He made us holy, not for one year, but for all of eternity. So holy brethren, partakers of heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle, the sent one is what that means, and high priest of our confession. He's the one that went into the Holy of Holies. He was faithful to him who appointed him. So the Father sent him, he submitted to the Father, took on humanity, lived a perfect sinless life, obeyed him flawlessly in order to save us. And then he says, as Moses also was in his house. Listen to this, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Why is he doing that? Because people still love to worship men. And as great as Moses was, he was no Jesus. In fact, Moses couldn't wait to see his day, couldn't he? Hebrews chapter 11 tells us. He longed for those days when he would come. And he has a greater house that goes on to tell us, as this whole passage is about. Drop down to chapter 4, um, 14 through 16. 
I'm going to skip a few because I'm going to run out of time. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, listen to this, who has passed through the heavens. Isn't that interesting? He passed through. He came down here, lived a sinless life, performed the great propitiatory work that satisfied the Father for all time. When he was done, he passed back through the heavens as they're now sitting at the right hand. This is what this means. No other priest could say that. No one who went into this could say, well, I passed through the heavens and got here. No, I passed through a, a curtain and then another curtain and then one more to get here. And I got to come back next year. No, this one came from heaven. I think that's fascinating. He's trying to show the great difference between Jesus Christ and just, just an earthly priest. And he names him Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. There it is again. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, it's just good in your prayer time just to look at God and confess truth to him. You sent your son. I had no hope. He passed through heaven. He was sacrificed himself for me. I confess that. I believe that. Affirm what you believe with God. It's not for him. It's for you. So we, he keeps telling about this writer, keeps telling confirm these things. Because why? Because they're still holding on to some, some of them maybe holding on to some, something they have done in order to get into the presence of the Father. Verse 15, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us and our weaknesses. That statement is telling us that he categorically understands what you're going through. And that's because he wasn't some spirit being who just floated around, ended up coming into some body and was crucified and then floated away. Born of a virgin, born under the law, all of that tells us that he loved us and died for us and he knows what we're going through. He, he sympathizes with you. But the difference in him than a pastor or a, or a priest or anybody else or your mate or whoever it would be is that this one, when he was tempted, he didn't sin. <laughs> oh, that priest. I just would not want to be that guy. I mean, first, curtain coming into the courtyard. Hey, that's okay. Second one going to the most holy. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine that? But not this one. He, he, he's perfect. Verse 16, therefore let us draw near with confidence. Here we go again, right back to the same kind of teaching. Come with confidence before the throne of grace. That is an arrogance that's confidence in Christ. That's why Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. We put that on the gym wall, you know, for our high school basketball team. I guess that works, but... This is the kind of God that we have confidence in, right? We draw near to him. Look, people who are saved, people who believe that Christ did this for them are not afraid of him. Not needing, well, you know, I'll give some money, you go deal with that. Every one of us who is a believer in this room, we are not afraid of our father we have confidence, not in our work, but in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you have the, this is why we use this term, I use it all the time. I believe in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in the finished work. That motivates me. And so I can come in and say, Father, I need your help. I've, I'm struggling in some areas. But I'm not afraid to come to him. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that... Here's the henna clause. Here's the, the result clause of all that what Jesus has done. So you may receive mercy and find grace in the help of need, in the time of need. Aren't we fools when we don't go, out, go ask God for help? We're fools. It, it's like we say one thing out of one side of our mouth and then we do something out of the other side. You have a Savior who passed through the heavens, passed through the veil, appeased an almighty Father, not for just a day, not for just a year, but for all of eternity. Oh, Lord, come help me. I need your help. I think I've used the prayer as much as anything I've ever said to the Lord. Please help me, Lord. 
And I don't know if you think that's a sign of weakness or what you may think, but I just find myself praying that prayer a lot. And it's not out of, it's not out of fear, it's out of confidence. I need your help, Lord. Please help me. If you've counseled with me, you've heard me pray that, Lord, help us now. We need your help. Chapter 5, verse 4 through 6. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron. This is a gift, right? To go into the presence of God, it's a gift. It's an honor, right? God has blessed us and given us the salvation. Verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself. So as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, see, God did this, you're my son, today I've begotten you, Psalms chapter 2. Just as he also said in another passage, which is Psalms 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, eternal and, and king and all that. We'll see that in the next passage. Look it down with me to help understand that one. Look at 6, 19. Chapter 6, verse 19, this hope we have is an anchor of our soul. All right, where's our midshipman at in here? Does that make sense? Anchor of our soul, those who have spent time by Byington, spent a great part of his life floating around on flat tops out there, right? Way anchor. You would say that, wouldn't you, by? This Jesus Christ is the anchor of our soul. <laughs> Why? Because life and difficulty and bad theology is always pushing you around one way or another. He, he anchors us. Look at this. The hope, both sure and steadfast, one which entered within the veil. Look, we're right back there again. Boy, anybody want to offer you a different God, say, well, did, was he able to go through the veil? <laughs> it's, just, it's just a mockery when you find religions that don't believe Jesus is God. You know they're lost because nobody went through the veil then. Do you think Muhammad got through that veil? Rabboni or whoever else? Jesus is the one who goes through the veil. Look at verse 20, where Jesus is entered as a forerunner for us. Oh, isn't that good? You know, we always talk about John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our forerunner through the veil. Isn't that astounding? He had to break, he had to split the veil, go through it to bring us to the Father. I love this verse. Have you ever said, Jesus is my forerunner? We don't say that very often, do we? We're always thinking about John the Baptist. And yet, here the Bible says Jesus is our forerunner. Look at this. Having become a high priest forever according to the, the order of Melchizedek. And you go, well, what does that mean? Look at chapter 7, 1 through 3. For this Melchizedek, here comes a list. King of Salem, that would be Jerusalem later on. Priest of the Most High God. Who met Abraham as he was turning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. <laughs> Sometimes I get in the third world. Um, moms will come up with babies and ask me to bless their children. And they don't think they're thinking I'm God or something like that, but I always feel so weird. <laughs> I've got nothing to give you but the gospel. But here, Christ, this Melchizedek, and many people might be included, as this is a pre incarnate Christ, is blessing Abraham. And then here, to give him a little more descriptive here, to whom Abraham appointed a tenth. He gives an offering of all the spoil, all that he has. He gives back to the Lord Jesus Christ, should motivate us in our giving, was first of all, by translation, his name. Well, who is he? Well, he's the king of righteousness. Well, the, well, that eliminates a human. And then he's the king of Salem that would go on to be the king of Jerusalem, which is the king of peace. There's only one guy called Prince of Peace. He's without father, without mother, without genealogy. Christ, Christ, Christ. Having neither beginning of days, Christ, nor end of life, Christ, but made like the Son of God, he pertaining to the priests perpetually. 
And so here he's trying to identify us that God was laying down, even in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 14, a picture of a coming Messiah who would go through the veil for us. Chapter 7, 1 through 3, though I did that, um, 25 through 28. I was just trying to pick out special passages here as, we've, as we follow our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who near, draw near to God through him. So he, Jesus, therefore, if this is all true, he's this great priest, and you can read that the rest of that in, in chapter 7, what a beautiful read 7 is. He's able. I have that marked in my Bible. He's able. He, and the word's stronger than able. He has the power to save. Not for a year. <laughs> What's it say? Forever. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always, listen to this, these are such great terms, right? He always lives to make intercession for you. Are you talking to him? Verse 26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. <laughs> well, why? Because only Jesus is holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above all the heavens. No one else could fill that role. No priest, no king, no anybody. And yet he's a priestly king. No one could fill that description. Verse 27, who does not need daily like the other high priest to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. They had to do all that. That's what made it so scary to be a high priest. Hey, buddy, you're up. <laughs> really? Oh, my goodness. Wouldn't that have been difficult? But because this, he did once for all when he offered himself up. And that's what we love about Christ. It's a once for all. It isn't like, well, 2021, I better go back. Scott's really messing up down there. Of a great priest, a great high priest. Look at verse 8, chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Now the main point is what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throat of the majesty on high. This is, you, we've already seen this in chapter 1. A minister in the sanctuary, listen to this, and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. We're right back to Exodus Chapter 26 and 27, right? He's going, that was nice. That allowed me to be with you in a unique, um, limited way. But not, that's not the tabernacle we're talking about here. We're talking about the sanctuary. We're talking about heaven itself, the true tabernacle. That's where Lord pitched his tent. And think about this. When the Bible teaches that we are his temple, it means he tabernacles with us. He, what, pitches his tent in your heart, <laughs> See, it's, it's why we got to be careful because we whine and complain and we go, I can't do this. That's a rejection of the power of God. That's why Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's why he gives those lists of stuff, dangers in this and dangers in that and dangers in this and in shipwreck and snake pit and all those things. And in the end of all that, he, he writes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because he actually believed what God was writing through him Chapter 9. Ugh, I don't know how to break this one up. We've got to close with this. Now even, now, even the first covenant, verse 1, had regulations of divine worship and earthly sanctuary. It can only come in once a year, right? For there was a tabernacle prepared, an outer one, in which were lampstands and tables and sacred bread that is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar incense and the ark of the covenant. Covered on all sides with gold, in which the gold jar holding manna and Aaron's rod, with which bud it, and the, tab the, tab uh, the tables of covenant, tablets of covenant. And above it were cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in full detail. Why? Because they're not important compared to what Jesus has done. Now, when these things have been so prepared, that's what we're studying in Exodus, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing divine worship. They're sacrificing over and over. But into the second, only the high priest entered once a year, not without taking, taking blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place 
has not yet been disclosed why the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbolic for a present time. It was there. It was a symbolic. There's, this hadn't, the, the new covenant had not come. This was still standing at this moment. This is how you came to God is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us here. According, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which, now here's what the problem was in this time, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm saved on the side of the cross because I got to go get another little lamb and I got to feed him up, take care of him, and go kill him again and again and again. And even then, notice at the end of verse 9, I still can't get a clear conscience. Isn't that amazing your conscience is clear as a Christian? Think of one horrible thing you've done in the past. You brought it up, God didn't. I know I asked you to, but... I mean, he clears your conscience of those things. Now, this isn't some kind of scapegoat of, of living with no consequences to your sin. If you sin and, and willingly do that, you're going to have some consequences. But, but God even clears our conscience. That's why Paul could minister so well. Look at verse 10. Since it was related only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed on the time of Reformation. So that's where they are. They're just at that point. Verse 11, what a great conjunction. But... When Christ appeared as a high priest to come, a high priest of good things to come, he entered into the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. They were so mad at Jesus when he would cleanse a temple, that he would talk about it being destroyed, and he would talk about all that stuff because they, they worshiped that temple because to them that was their way to God. Christ came for something so much greater than two-by-fours and skins and, and even the great temple that Herod built. He came into the presence of God. And notice he came when none not made with hands, but not of his creation. Verse 12, not with blood of bulls or goats and calves, but with his own blood. For me, I'm a word picture guy. They brought that blood in, in the Day of Atonement. They would have a basin. You know what they did. And we'll see it in Leviticus 16. They would take... Two goats, and they would, um, they would bleed out the one, and they would bleed that blood, and, and they'd hold that lamb up, and he would bleed out and just kind of die in their arms. But they would have a basin of blood, and that blood they would go in through the holy place and into the holy, holy of holies, and they would take that blood and cast it on there. The other goat would be led to show that their sins were forgiven for that year. But listen, this one... This lamb, this final lamb, comes in with his own blood. And to me, this is how I picture it. This is my Lord coming in for Scott. Hey, this is my blood. Will you forgive Scott for eternity? And the Father accepts that and propitiates. He's satisfied with it. Because look, verse 13, if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled those who had been defiled, sancti um, who had been defiled sanctifying, sanctified for the cleansing of flesh, if that worked for that one year, if that, if that held off the wrath of God for a year, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse, here we go again, your conscience from dead works to serve a living God. For this reason, he, Jesus, the great high priest, is the mediator of the new covenant. Nobody else could mediate it, could he? So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Man, that's the finished work. And just one more passage, 10, and I'll quit here, I promise. But the law, since it was only a shadow of things to come, this is why our dear friends who get caught up in legalistic things and, and try to keep this and keep that and don't, don't eat this and don't do that or go that, they're just messing around with a shadow. <laughs> Shadows go away and come. And Why would you want to do this? They're not the real form, it says here. They're not the very form of things and can never, by the same, 
sacrifice, which they offered continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So that's why legalism is so dangerous, because in the end you were mean, cranky, and tried to keep all these rules, and then you go to hell anyway. At least be a happy guy going to hell. I mean, worse people are people trying to somehow please themselves, please God in some way of what they're doing, and they're miserable, and they make everybody else miserable around them. Unfortunately, this falls in Christianity as well sometimes. Otherwise, they would have not ceased to be offered. Well, why did it stop? Well, they tore our temple down. Well, wait a minute. If that's your only way to the presence of God, why aren't you still doing it? But those sacrifices, verse 3, were a reminder of sin just year to year. That's mostly what they're for, just to remind you you're a sinner year after year. For it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So we still do some of this, right? We think about our church attendance. We think about our good works. I said a prayer. I walked an aisle. I raised a hand. See, those don't take away sin. Now, that might have been how you responded as the Spirit of God was drawing you and opening your heart to regenerate you. But they, those acts themselves don't. It is God who does it. In verse 5, we, we drop into this Um, heavenly conversation between the Son and the Father. And when He comes into the world, when Jesus comes in the world, Jesus says to His Father, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. That was not the plan. The the system, the law, the the temple, all of that was not how you were going to bring man to yourself. There was something greater. You prepared a body for me. Look at that. Everything's pointing to that. That's why we study the Old Testament and we go... We go right to the new. We just, Jesus says, look, look, you read the whole Bible and you didn't find me? What's wrong with you people on Emmaus Road? How foolish are you? See, that's what he's doing. So there's a body prepared. And he was told all through the scriptures, there's a seed coming. He'll crush the head of the, the evil one. And he's told them all the way through the Bible. Prophets came and told about one being born of a virgin. Told these things and yet they didn't believe. And, and so they kept trying to present themselves till they were so hardened. And when the Lord Jesus comes, only 120 people believe in him at the end of his life, it seems. Never takes away sin. And verse 6 says that he took no pleasure in it. Drop down to verse 9 with me. And then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. This is Jesus talking to the Father. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. Why on earth are people trying to keep the law in order to gain righteousness? The whole book of Galatians is written on that. He came to establish it. and take, take to, to establish the first, he means Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the first. I, I came to fulfill it so you guys don't have to because you can't. So I came to do that so I could usher in the new covenant. Verse 10, by this We have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of the Lord Jesus once and for all. That's him right in the Holy of Holies. I've got to quit, but look at 19 through 20. I promise this is it. (laughs) Therefore, brethren, here we go again. Third time we've seen this so far, and there's more of it in here. I just picked out these three. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence... To enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance. That's the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we hold him. That's what Hebrews is about. He's... He's the greater prophet. He's the greater king. He's the greater high priest. He has a greater tabernacle. Greater, greater, greater is Jesus. And if you're new to our church, you're going to hear that till they take our breath away. Because that's all we need is Christ and his word. And it's enough to get through this difficult life. Father, thank you for these lessons that are coming out of deep in the Old Testament text. And Lord, we see you so gracious to the nation. They're already complaining and whining. You've drowned their enemies in front of them. You pillaged the nation of Egypt. You wiped them out. Showed your power. They never lifted a finger. 
Now they're at the base of the mountain and Moses is up there getting all this detail of a way a holy God could reside with them. It was not a permanent situation. It was temporary because it was all a picture of something that was going to come. A greater tabernacle not made with hands. A greater high priest who would never have to cleanse himself. And yet in all of this you were so gracious to the nation. You were going to come and dwell with them. And they were going to know you were there. They would see your visible power and light and fill the temple. We'll see that when we get to Exodus 40. And yet, they would watch those great sermons and the next day complain. The next day, not be satisfied with your hand. Lord, teach us to worship Jesus. To be in awe and captured by his grace and mercy and all that he did for us. Otherwise, life overtakes us. Our only hope is in him. Lord, we sing such beautiful songs men and women have written down through the ages. We read the scriptures. We memorize them. Lord, help us believe it. Help our unbelief. Help us live for you, Lord. Time is short. and getting shorter every day. Give us strength. Help us have confidence in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, bless this group, Lord. Those who are here pre presently, Lord. Those who are watching. I pray for those who are sick. Those who are struggling. Lord, put, help them put their confidence in Jesus tonight. Give them peace, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.